Hello humans, welcome to The Great Everything, an exploration of our world through pop, culture and philosophy. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to becoming a better human. I believe the key to self-improvement is a rich intellectual life. There are powerful lessons and experiences to be found in literature and music and high culture in general, what we could just call art. But obviously, life isn't just about Shakespeare and Mozart. It's also Batman. It's the Wu-Tang Clan. It's that Netflix series you just binged. It's the taste of a truly great donut. And we also need philosophy. I don't just mean ethics, but thinking through life's questions critically, doing our best to understand the issues, so that when we speak on a topic, we're not just contributing to the noise, but having a positive impact on the world. Trying on all these different experiences, all these different ways we can be better, I call that transformation. And that's what The Great Everything is all about. Art, donuts, and transformation. The 29th of April was the anniversary of the birth in 1899 of musician and bandleader Duke Ellington, perhaps the single individual most responsible for taking African-American culture and establishing it as real art. So today we're talking art with Duke Ellington, America's greatest composer. What can be said about Duke Ellington that hasn't been said before? One of the classic jazz artists, and I mean that literally because he wasn't just one of the very greatest, you know, one of the few jazz musicians who everyone, even non-jazz fans, have heard of. But he was also instrumental in advancing the idea of jazz as more than just a popular dance music, but as high art, worthy of the same kind of intellectual respect and debate and discussion as uh, classical music or opera. And that's one thing I love about jazz, uh, one of the reasons I think jazz matters. Usually, on the one hand, we have high culture, intellectual stuff like art house movies and Beethoven string quartets, etc. And then on the other, we got the pop culture stuff, Guardians of the Galaxy, Game of Thrones, Kanye, you know, donuts. But the very best, the greatest art forms, are those that manage to combine both elements, the intellectual stimulation of art and the gut level impact of donuts. But I don't think any art form achieves that balance of high and low culture, the art-donut combo, better than jazz. Think about its roots for a second. Jazz couldn't have a humbler or more tragic origin story. Men and women, stripped from their homes, from their land, spirited away across the ocean on ships to another world, separated from their families, sold into slavery. And now they're living among others, just like them, but who don't even speak their language. Because, you know, just in case we need reminding, Africa isn't one language or one culture. Imagine you as a white American. You're, you're thrown into a Soviet prison. Now, everyone there is white, just like you. But, you know, they're Russian. They're Hungarian. They're Bulgarian. They're Yugoslavian. How the hell are you going to even communicate with these people? But unlike you and the Bulgarians, there is one thing the slaves had in common with one another. Music. Ancient traditions stretching way back into the past to the dawn of humankind. Ring shouts, call and response patterns, flat notes. And so that's how they communicate, through music. They sing together across fields, and then in chain gangs, then in public spaces like Congo Square in New Orleans, where people would gather to watch these exotic rhythmic sounds from another world. And then, also in New Orleans, this sound develops. It mixes in all sorts of different influences, like ragtime and blues and brass instruments from marching bands. And slowly, jazz is born. 
And it's played in the streets, it's played in the seediest bars in town, it's played in the brothels of Storyville. Jazz is bawdy, it's raucous, it's dirty. That's the origin of jazz. Yet today, jazz is played in concert halls and opera houses, and any pretentious nerd who wants to impress their date with how smart they are, they'll tell them that they listen to jazz. From whorehouse to concert hall, that's quite a leap. And Duke Ellington may be more responsible for that leap than any other man. A little more context. While jazz is busy being born down in New Orleans, something's happening in New York. Like Chicago and Philly and the other great cities in the North, for decades now, New York has been a destination for black immigrants, fleeing from the segregation and institutionalized racism of the uh, Jim Crow South. In New York, one neighborhood especially had attracted a concentration of African Americans, Harlem. And as a part of this rich, buzzing city that's New York, with all its diversity and the cultural influences, Harlem is experiencing a boom in culture. They call it the Harlem Renaissance. I'd say it's about black people in America beginning to find their voice. And it's a voice that is strong and self-sufficient and intellectual. This is an explosion in literature and philosophy and in the idea of what a proud, emancipated African-American should be. And in this vibrant intellectual landscape, jazz finds a home. But Harlem jazz is different from the New Orleans style. See, jazz is still a poor person's music, so it's using poor people's instruments. Banjos, trombones, these are the staples of the Southern style. New York is a rich city. It's got a powerful middle class. And the musical instrument of choice for any sophisticated family, from Park Avenue to Harlem, is the piano. Harlem jazz is all about the piano. A new style emerged in New York called the stride piano, from the way the left hand would stride long distances over the keyboard. Musicians and listeners and intellectuals, they'd gather together in tiny packed apartment rooms, where a host would throw a party armed with just a piano, and there'd be an entrance fee, which uh, the host would then use to pay the rent, so these were known as rent parties. And at these rent parties, you'd find wizards of improv like Willie the Lion Smith and Fats Waller, and they would challenge each other to duels of skill on the piano, so-called cutting contests. But in New York, it's not just black folks in tiny apartments. White people are enjoying jazz too. You know, it's the 20s, the Great War is over, people want to enjoy life, they want to have fun, they want to drink, and they want to dance. So people from all over the city, black and white, they're gathering in giant dance halls like the famous Savoy, and they're shaking their hips to these popular dances, first the Charleston and the Foxtrot, and now jazz. And in one such venue, the Cotton Club, on 142nd Street in Harlem, there's another pianist entertaining white crowds with his band. His name is Edward Kennedy Ellington. Even if you don't know his music, there's one thing about Duke Ellington that really jumps out at you. His incredible elegance. Watch any of his old interviews and you'll see the perfect image of a gentleman. Always impeccably dressed and groomed, his speech and manner cultivated. It's no wonder they called him the Duke. And that elegance, it's all over his music. Most evidently in his playing style. At the piano, he has a light touch. It's soft and sophisticated, poised, like a classical pianist. And his sound is deeply mysterious. It's seductive and it's kind of exotic. In his early pieces like East St. Louis Toodaloo and Black and Tan Fantasy, you can sense uh, almost a raw and primal energy simmering just beneath the surface, bursting to get out but always contained. There's a, 
a raw sensuality to this, coupled with a feminine grace to, to Duke Ellington's music that makes it truly erotic. In pieces like Caravan and Sophisticated Lady, you really sense this atmosphere of dark intrigue that has nothing to do with the bright bounciness of New Orleans jazz. This is nighttime music. It's elusive. It evokes a sensual mood that lingers like the smoke in a Harlem nightclub. And of course, it's always imbued with that marvelous elegance that's Duke's true trademark. Jazz legend Wynton Marsalis, he put it best, Duke's best music takes you to a dimly lit room at midnight where something of interest is about to take place. But it's not just erotic music to awaken the loins. The complexity of these three-minute pieces is astonishing. The way different sounds are layered and juxtaposed in pieces like Mood Indigo, it displays a rigorous structure, sophistication, an artistic sensitivity that's just never been heard before in American music. This is music that is worthy of being dissected and analyzed, just like a classical sonata. This is high art. That's another thing with Duke. Even while he was one of the most popular musicians in America, and therefore the world, you know, he was amassing a mass audience, he was always experimenting with the art form, always pushing it to the limit of what could be popular music. You know how what usually happens these days, there's a band that starts off unique and experimental, and as it becomes more successful, it becomes more mainstream with time. The Duke, he's doing the exact opposite, because even at his most popular, he's constantly innovating, dissolving the barriers between art and donut. And part of this is, you know, he rejected categorization of his music you know, within the rigid boundaries of this or that genre. When he was asked to describe what genre of music he was playing, he responded, you have to stop listening in categories. The music is either good or it's bad. A final point I always note with Duke Ellington is what an amazing team player he was. Yeah, he was an accomplished pianist in his own right, but his real genius is as a band leader. He was able to mold his orchestra to his own voice, while allowing his individual band members to express their own personalities. And personality, that was something he really looked out for in musicians. When he was picking a new member for his orchestra, he wouldn't necessarily go for the most technically accomplished player. He'd go for the one whose unique personality came through in their sound. He described himself as the world's greatest listener. So he'd listen to his players and he'd understand their strengths and their weaknesses. And then he'd specifically compose his pieces to highlight those individual strengths. The music was tailored so that each personality could shine within the context, of course, of all the other diverse personalities in the band. And the result was an extraordinary alchemy, with all these different elements coming together in a whole that was far greater than the sum of its parts. It reminds me of a dish by another great artist, uh, the Italian chef Massimo Bottura. It's called Five Ages of Parmesan. And what Bottura does is he takes Parmigiano, aged at five different stages, and he gives each of them a different texture. Uh, a souffle, a foam, a wafer, and it all comes together in a single unmistakable feeling that this is what Parmigiano should taste and feel like. And that's Duke Ellington with his orchestra. And it's something we can all learn from. Jazz historian Ted Joya, his first job was at the strategy consultancy firm Boston Consulting Group. And Joya tells how his firm used to recommend to clients Duke Ellington as a source of managerial wisdom as someone who wouldn't just demand that his team adapt to his own vision, but who used the talents of the individual team members to contribute to that vision in new and unexpected ways. 
Under Duke Ellington's, let's call it management, members stayed on for decades. And in those decades, Duke Ellington composed more timeless jazz standards and contributed more classics to the repertoire than any other artist before or since. He found the voice and launched the careers of jazz legends like Bubba Miley and Johnny Hodges and Cootie Williams and Ben Webster. And he elevated jazz from its humble origins to an art form that is almost synonymous with high culture. A genius and a gentleman, Duke Ellington truly is America's greatest composer. Well, folks, that's about all I have time for today. If you're interested in more Duke, I recommend you try out anything from his Cotton Club days, uh, the jungle music style, or from his classic 40s lineup, the Duke uh, Live at Fargo in 1940. is actually a great place to start for that. Now, if you're interested in something a bit more symphonic, but with a social-political edge, then his epic black, brown, and beige really is a high point in jazz as America's classical music. If you have Spotify, check out the show notes. You'll find a link to a short, curated Spotify playlist that will work to introduce you to Duke Ellington and uh, what makes him special. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Great Everything. And if you like the show, there's a few ways you can help out. You can leave a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to this podcast. Or you can share it, embed it, talk about it on your podcast or write a blog about it. Or you could just add me on the various Twitters and Instagrams out there. But if you want to be a part of the conversation, you can call in using Anchor. Or you can look up The Great Everything on Facebook. I have a discussion group there where people talk about literally everything from ethics to politics to Marvel movies. So if that's your thing, check it out. I hope I see you again here, there or anywhere else, frankly. Until then, grazie e arrivederci.